0: about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philokalia Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philokalia Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you, and enjoy the podcast. To Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back everybody to our study of the Everettinos and we are picking up with volume one and we're in, uh, on page 400 of the text. Uh, so we're coming pretty close to the end of this volume and uh, we are on paragraph 76. And as I just mentioned, we have been discussing humility and the distinctive marks of humility and uh, as pride can uh, undo you know, all the virtue that we have and lead to a great fall for us, so humility uh, can make up for what is lacking within us in regards to virtue. That humility is what allows for repentance to take place. We see uh, the truth about ourselves, our poverty, our sin, and our need for God and his mercy. And the moment that we turn towards him in faith, immediately, there is a, a flood of grace. And uh, and so even though we might be lacking in many of the virtues, uh, to have humility is to open oneself up to God in a radical way. And in, in this, we, mod, we uh, uh, imitate Christ uh, most fully as he offers himself upon the cross. And so those who are humble become, as it were, confessors, of the faith, that they bear witness uh, in their very actions uh, without having to say a word uh, to the the humility of our Lord and uh, to his uh, self emptying love of the cross. And so again, we are in paragraph 76. There was a brother who lived in the hermit cells and who had attained to such humility that he always prayed to God Lord, strike me with a thunderbolt, for when I am healthy, I disobey thee. (laughs) I don't know if I'd go so far as to ask to be struck by a thunderbolt, but uh, I remember I I was once at a monastery in Ireland, Silverstream Priory, and we were reading uh, about, uh, there's an image of our Lord on a cloth. um, What's the name of the the house? Loretto? Is there in Italy? Is that, Am I correct there? And a uh, very ancient image. And it's been the site of many pilgrims throughout the centuries. And one of the oratorians had gone uh, to visit this, this image of our Lord. And, uh, and had a great devotion to it. And it turns out that uh, when he was there, he was struck by lightning. And uh, when it happened, it didn't kill him. All that it did was uh, singe his underwear, his his undergarments. And so he attributes uh, the you know, being struck, you know, seeing or his devotion to this image of our Lord's face as protecting him from being death after being struck by a thunderbolt. Not that that has anything to do with this paragraph, but it just uh, came to mind. Uh, it seemed humorous of all things, you know, an oratorian getting struck by lightning and having his underwear burned. You know, that's this great story. And it was sort of funny, you know, I'm here, I'm in this Benedictine monastery, and I'm excited that this story of an oratorian comes up. And the one story is, you know, one getting struck by lightning but i think what this monk is saying is that it it is often when we know the the weakness and the poverty of sickness that we often will depend most upon god that uh, physical illness of one sort or another often makes it very clear to us our need for his grace as well as the brevity of our our life and uh our very suffering itself can become a form of prayer. Uh, we've talked a lot in some of the groups about the involvement of the full self in prayer and how this, we see the saints making these prostrations. And I remember in the last group we talked about St. Nectarius, every time he was saying the Jesus prayer, making a full prostration. And uh and so we you know part of our desire is to become prayer and uh and there's something about illness itself where we experience in our very being that poverty we're humbled in body that it is almost like making those prostrations. we are humbled before god and we cry out to him for his grace and strength and uh all illusion at that point Uh, will fade away, and the things that we cling to so often for identity, uh, for uh, self-esteem, no longer console or satisfy us. The one thing that does is the love of God, and uh, it alters, you know, even though this seems to be a strong statement, uh, the experience of illness often does alter uh, the way that we pray and our experience of God and self in a radical way, and when we look at the lives of the saints, for so many of them, it uh, the point of conversion was this radical humbling of body in one way or another, an illness that brings them close to death. Ignatius Loyola, you know, has the legs shot out from underneath him by a cannonball, and in his recovery. Uh, begins to read the lives of the saints because that's all that's available to him so it's often uh, these experiences of being brought low that then we are exalted we're lifted up by the Lord in in order to experience a closeness to him and it's a hard thing because I think oftentimes illness will at first make us withdraw into ourselves and we think about our misery or wanting, whether it's a cold or something more serious, we want to be free of it. And, uh, and we want to be free of that experience of our physical poverty. But if we're able to, uh, in a spirit of resignation, of holy resignation, to be able to embrace that reality, then consolation comes to us very quickly and the sense of the presence of God, and the deepening of, of prayer, uh, that, uh, again, we lose the things that are typically distractions for us. And so sometimes the deepest of prayer is uh, is said on one's sickbed. Uh, I think uh, in modern times, we have gotten used to Uh, distracting ourselves because of the availability of things like computers and cell phones that we will, you know, zone out by watching one thing after another. Uh, Whereas in the past, you know, that certainly wasn't a possibility. Uh, But we hear again and again from the Saints, East and West, saying, you know, not to waste those times of illness and not to allow them to be periods where we let go of our prayer life because we often rationalize well i'm sick I can't hold on to my prayer role and uh, but it's really at those times that we should be uh, seeking not to distract ourselves but to keep our our focus and attention upon upon God and uh, when, when there are those who are really sick. They'll tell you that you know the only thing that they could do is to say the name of Jesus or or the Jesus prayer. You know when they're brought so low uh, that uh, you know they can't think straight, and it's it's then again that there's no impediment, and so we have a hard time in our day and age dealing with things like illness or uh, or suffering in general. Uh, and often we'll see it as a punishment from God rather than being something that God himself has embraced and so also redeemed it, transformed it. He didn't free, free us from it, but he alters it in his own embrace of it. And now every time we experience illness or sickness, uh, again, it's never in isolation that Christ is always there present for us uh, because he's assumed everything uh, of our humanity. And again, not in an abstract way or in a way that's distant from our own personal experience, but for each and every one of us, uniquely he's embraced all that we experience and have experienced throughout the course of our life. And I think this is hard for us to imagine And it's faith that only allows us, I think, to go beyond the confines of imagination or reason to be able to acknowledge presence there, uh, sometimes in the very things that seem to bring us low as human beings. Number 77. An elder said, if a man wearies himself in constantly reproving, humbling, and disparaging his soul without making a show of it, in the end, he persuades it that it has less value than dogs and beasts. For they, as animals, neither anger their creator nor enter into judgment. Therefore, it is much better for me not to rise up in judgment than to rise up and be punished eternally. So. You know, the, again, this idea, and we're going to go into greater depth in the following st- step or the following hypothesis about self-reproach, that uh, it's not self-hatred, but it's an acknowledgement of the poverty of our sin. And if you remember the scriptures tell us, even the righteous man sins seven times a day, that is perfectly and, uh, and so there is no amount of humbling ourselves that is going to be excessive in the sense of acknowledging our need for God's mercy. We don't want it to fall into self-hatred, but I think what the author is trying to tell us here is that uh, that if, when we humble ourselves to, to, in a sense to make ourselves lower than even the beast, Uh, then there's a kind of freedom that that comes from that. Because so often in our sin, that's exactly what we do. We let go of the dignity that is uniquely ours as human beings, that we've been gifted with uh, not only uh, God's love, but the capacity to love as God loves. We've been gifted with a dignity of being made in his image and likeness. And so often we will cast that aside for that which is much less. Uh, Often things simply to satisfy our own baser appetites and desires. And so we want to read these statements in in light of this, that the the self-reproach, again, is to sensitize our conscience that often becomes dulled uh, because we immerse ourselves in the things of the world and immerse ourselves in it so deeply. The conscience, if you remember, is uh, that which is given to us that rebukes us when we've turned away from the will of God. It means to know with God. And uh, when it becomes dulled, when we are not forming it through a life of prayer, the study of scriptures, uh, through fasting and through the other ascetic disciplines, uh, then it becomes so dulled that it no longer Guides us back to where we we need to be, and so sometimes it does take this kind of consistency and constancy and humbling ourselves and self-reproach that uh, again sensitizes it. And I think even the the prayer, the Jesus prayer, does this in uh, an ever so gentle way. You know, we're calling out for God's mercy. Uh, but then acknowledging that we are sinner lord jesus christ son of god have mercy on me as sinner and when it becomes every breath there is this movement of the mind and the heart toward god and uh and so i think in the end this is how we really want to to read this number 78 a monk visited an elder and asked him how are you doing, Father? Badly, answered the elder. Why so, Abba? Asked the brother again. Look, I've been standing before God for 18 years and cursing myself daily, saying, Cursed are they which do err from thy commandments. On hearing this self reproach of the elder, the brother departed, greatly edified by the elder's humility. So, again, you know, something a little jarring to the sensibilities and uh, and I'm grateful for it. I know that it sounds sort of odd to say, but I think when we read the gospels, uh, we have become so familiar with them that they often aren't jarring to us when they should be. Uh, I've been reading this book recently called The Secret Seminary. And you know how I often talk about that if I were to run seminaries, I would raise them to the ground and start over again. Well, I found a book that actually articulates that. And it's talking about forming the, uh, you know, what what is the the theologian formed uh, in the mindset of the desert, of the Desert Fathers? And uh, and one of the stories is of uh, this hermit who's teaching them who uh, reads to them in this very prayerful way, the Beatitudes. And, you know, basically at the end of it, you know, it seems very prayerful as he reads it. And then he laughs before them and says, you know, how, how ridiculous it is, utter nonsense. You know, the poor aren't happy. The poor aren't, you know, in the eyes of the world blessed. And, uh, and yet we can often read through the Beatitudes and treat it as if it's like the Magna Carta of Christianity and, uh, and as if it's something poetic, you know, often uh, uh, as a Latin Rite priest, it was one of the selections that uh, couples could choose for their wedding uh, mass and not a bad selection but most often they chose it because so many of the translations didn't use the word blessed but used the word happy and so i i got the feeling over the course of 25 years 30 years of doing weddings that so often this particular gospel was being chosen not because of the spirituality of the beatitudes what it you know and how it is to be reflected within the married life but rather because it seemed to capture their feelings on this given day happiness but christ isn't talking about worldly happiness he's talking about blessedness and the particular blessedness of of the kingdom of a participation in a godly love and a godly humility and so when we have readings like this where You know, a monk is, after accusing himself for 18 years, still sees something of the vestiges of pride within himself, that he could do this even for such a long period of time, and yet so easily does the mind and the heart snap back to clinging to ego and self-esteem and wanting to be treated a certain way within this world. And the Desert Fathers don't allow us any more than the gospel, uh, the leeway to do that. They present us with the gospel in an unvarnished fashion uh, and uh, not wanting us uh, to have you know, this false sense or romantic sense of poverty or poverty of spirit. You know, a person who has true poverty, you know, we often will have our escapes out of it, you know, backup plans. You know, the person who's truly poor in this world typically has no escape from it, uh, if we think about the mass of individuals who know true and deep poverty. And these are the ones that Christ is calling blessed, you know, because they you know, there is nothing there again that they are clinging to, or the illusion uh, of, of of wealth in some way that is to be found outside of God. Now, that doesn't mean that every poor person necessarily sees this or acknowledges this or is humble in the way that the Lord was. But uh, there's less of a temptation there. To, to cling to ego and self-esteem uh, than we often have within the world. And so if these jar us and jar our sensibilities, I think so be it, you know, let, let us think about it a little while and let us pray on it uh, and stay immersed in it because uh, it's not, you know, just in great ways that we, turn away from this but in subtle ways on a day-to-day basis that we will hold on to something that we feel belongs to us and uh, you know monks in the desert could fight probably over you know a needle uh, just as fiercely as we fight over things in the world that seems to be seem to be of greater value and they saw it Uh, they saw it with a radical clarity Number 79, an elder said, if you stay in your cell and practice stillness, do not entertain the thought that you are doing something important, but rather regard yourself as a dog that has been chased out of a village because it bites and assaults people. And uh, this is an interesting thought because, again, it... It reveals to us how the monks saw themselves. We have a tendency in our day to see religious as those who are already holy individuals. You know, those who choose the religious path to be a nun, to be a priest, to be a monk. And, uh, you know, they aren't entering upon the monastic path because they see themselves as good and holy. It's just the opposite they know themselves as uh needing this discipline because they see themselves as so driven by the passions and so they take this path to help seek uh, to to help purify the heart and you know i think we do the wrong kind of thing and this is uh, you know one of the things i've often thought about seminary and how I appear, hear people talk about seminarians and young priests, and it's true for me as well. You know, it's the emphasis on talents and ability, even looks, for goodness sake, you know, which makes no sense whatsoever. And uh, that, that somehow these are a reflection of a depth of spirituality or desire for God. You know, the person may or may not have those things. And I found one place where there is a discerning superior that looks at the men's hearts and is able to see there that desire. Because many coming to the monastery are older or have had a rough You know, early life and, you know, even, you know, addictions, all kinds of stuff, and are not judging them and their suitability simply by their past, but rather what is within their heart and their desire. And they often become the best of monks. And I've talked here before about some of the communities, uh, newer communities that are growing very quickly. They often will have a quick litmus test. For those coming in, a psychological test evaluation to make sure there are no flags that come up, that they're a certain age, because they don't want them over an age where they might be difficult to form, you know, entrenched in their ways, and uh, that they seem like they'll fit neatly into their spirituality. And so often they aren't looking very deeply at the, the things that our Lord at times can see in an individuals. You know could see in a Matthew the tax collector or Peter and Andrew or the the woman caught in adultery you know and all those who traveled with him them him you know a motley crew a zealot Simon the zealot who would more likely want to kill the Romans than anything and uh and yeah, these were the ones that were open to to what he was saying and what he was offering the ones who had this greater capacity to see their weaknesses that weren't the professional religious or saw themselves as uh, as holy and uh and so you know regarding oneself as a dog being chased out of the village because it bites people you know if we saw ourselves truly we probably see ourselves in that light that people would chase us out of town because of how frequently in irritation we bite at people, you know, biting words, how harsh we are and uncharitable. If people could see really what's in our hearts, they probably would chase us out like a mad, mad dog. Number 80. An elder said, if you dwell in the desert and you see that God looks after you, do not let your heart be puffed up. For if you do, God will take his help away from you but rather say to yourself, God is merciful to me because of my negligence and weakness that I might endure and not become exhausted. So, you know, the the struggle is in the spiritual life to keep our focus upon God and not let it to turn in upon ourselves, even as we are being transformed, that God might deepen our prayer over the course of time. He might give us the grace that through our commitment, our desire and devotion, we enter more and more deeply into prayer. But the moment that we turn in and look at ourselves, become puffed up, as the author says here, then God will remove that grace in order that we might see again with clarity, our true weakness and and poverty. And so, You know, to to have eyes only for Christ uh, is, I think, the goal within the spiritual life. Uh, And if we see ourselves, we want to see ourselves, again, through the eyes of humility. Truth, again, truthful living. Truthful living. Anything so far? Any comments on any of the sayings? Pretty rough ones tonight. Okay, Sharon writes, I hope everyone knows about the Orthodox Christian prison ministry. Poor or wayward folks that end up in prison could benefit so much from the work these folks do. I feel like the prison cell could be substitute for a monk cell or the isolation of the Desert Fathers. Not sure where this fits into the discussion, but seems relevant. I think so too. I mean, you know, the name is penitentiary. You know, where it is meant to be something that is formative and curative healing, that simply being locked in a cell, I think sort of defeats the purpose. And especially when there is no like order to the life there. And I think, you know, people can just become more and more hardened because of the abuse they experience or simply living in the painful isolation. Uh, you would think what fruit and I think they see it in other ways when men are educated in prison often this can be transformative and often they will undergo a kind of conversion as well but think if they were nourished upon this material that we've looked at over the course of the years how transformative that would be because Sharon's right I mean I think certainly the prison cell you know, and the poverty of spirit that one would experience there could also be the place where one would undergo extraordinary conversion. Uh, I've seen a few articles recently where iconographers will go into prison, prisons and teach iconography to to prisoners as well. And, ha- and how that has turned out to be a kind of s- a spiritual renewal uh, for individuals as well because it's drawing them in not just to painting but into the very spirituality of iconography itself and uh, and so you know i think when people talk about the reform of the prison system you wonder what they're talking about because uh you know it never seems to happen and uh nor does it seem to be something that uh leads to a kind of healing where a person does not come you know back there after a very short period of time think of moses the black you know it was his encounters with the monk monks that transformed his life and he was a murderer and and worse you know and uh so saint thomas more uh chose to see his cell in the tower as such i believe right and so so to see you know, the isolation that one would experience, you know, as as something that draws them to Christ. Number 81, an elder said, if you hear of the wondrous lives of the Holy Fathers and feel warmth in your heart, and if you wish to emulate them, you should undertake this by invoking the name of the Lord, that he might strengthen you in the task that you have chosen. And if with God's help, you successfully fulfill this goal of yours, be thankful to him who helped you. But if you cannot fulfill it, recognize your weakness until your dying day. Regard yourself as inept, poor and impatient. You should always rebuke your soul for beginning something and not completing it. And this way you can be saved. So emulate, and if you can't emulate, at least to to acknowledge your own poverty and unwillingness Uh, to to make the effort. And, you know, we're reading this not to edify ourselves and not to fill our minds with the stories of the fathers, but to emulate them and uh, to imitate them in their prayer and vigils and the humbling of themselves. And you remember our uh, talking about the... uh, isaac the syrians ascetical homilies how one of the monks would not allow himself to turn the page until he interiorized what it was that he read until it became a part of him and and how he lived his life and so it should be for us we read slowly but perhaps not slowly enough uh in the sense of having it uh really become a part of our life that we emulate And uh, so maybe we're supposed to read them over and over again slowly until it does become uh, deeply ingrained. But this is the task for us. I mean, to take up the things that we are reading here and not to project it off, you know, to the monks living in the desert. Again and again, they tell us, this is not simply for monks, those in black robes. And we should be making efforts to fast to keep vigils, to pray without ceasing, to control our anger and our other passions in our day-to-day life. Uh, Let's see, Susan writes, I think that I've actually made myself sick from self-reproach because of my past years. 30 years of extreme desolation has warped my perception of God's love for my soul. Self-reproach can become a form of self-torture. The Desert Fathers is the first time anything I've come across has given me courage. Right. You know, I think when we're reading the Desert Fathers, you know, we're reading it in the context of all that has come before and that will come after. And this is why we read the entire corpus of their writings verbatim. And part of the reason for doing so is that there is this element of self-reproach and a kind of constancy as a spiritual exercise, but it's seen within the context of God's unceasing love for us and the desire to raise us up to experience theosis, which is this radical union and communion with the most holy trinity. And uh, and doing it within a group, talking about this within a group too, I think does uh, allow us to uh, consume it in such a way that we're doing it that it d- won't make us sick. It's jarring, as I said, uh, and we're presented it with an un- in an unvarnished fashion, but not disconnected from the entirety of that reality of the incarnation and what that means for us as human beings, what it is to be a human being now that God has embraced our humanity. And uh, you remember that little line from the movie, uh, Integrate Silence, it was about the Carthusians. And throughout the, the documentary, they would quote, flash various quotes from the scriptures or from the saints. And one is Christ speaking to a soul saying, uh, I, for love of you, I became human and you would do me wrong if you did not become divine, if you did not become God. And that we do God wrong in not becoming what he desires us to be by embracing our flesh. By embracing our humanity. He did it in order to lift us up. And so, as Susan says, you know, for it not to become torture or self-hatred, uh, it has to be relational. We have to see this in the context of the love of God for us. Uh, because in the similar way, our, all of our aesthetic practices can simply become about self uh, endurance. You know, that we are, you know pushing ourselves uh, and uh, trying to live these ordered lives. But outside of the context of the love for God, uh, that's all that they offer us and so we do have to be very careful that as religious people were capable of delusion okay number 820 lee writes hear read mark learn and inwardly digest right so your book should be marked up <laughs> little notes to self <laughs> oh if only we can internalize by inwardly digesting by consuming the books that would make things a little bit easier number 81 oh wait uh is that right number 82 Markarius once went from Sketus to the mountain of nitria for the feast day of abopambo the elder said to him tell the brethren something edifying father i have not yet become a monk he replied I've seen monks. On one occasion I was sitting in my cell in Scythus and I was bothered by thoughts of leaving which told me go away into the desert and take notice of what you see there. I remained fighting against this thought for five years fearing lest it come from demons. But since the thought persisted I went to the desert and there I found a lake and in the middle of it an island. The wild animals of the desert came to the lake to drink. In the midst of the animals, I saw two naked men and was frightened because I thought that they were spirits. When they saw me frightened, they said to me, do not be afraid. We two are men. Where are you from? I asked them. And how did you get to this desert? We are from the Cenobium, they answered, but we agreed to come out to this place where we have been for 40 years now. One of us is an Egyptian and the other is a Libyan. But tell us, how is the world? Does it have enough water and abundant harvest? Yes, all is well, I replied to them. But tell me, I beg you, how do I become a monk? If one does not renounce all things in this world, he cannot be a monk, they replied to me. I am weak and I cannot do what you do, I said to them a second time. If you cannot do what we do, they replied to me again, then stay in your cell and weep for your sins. When winter comes, do you not tremble from the cold? I asked them, and do your bodies not burn up from the tropical heat? God has provided for us, they responded, that we should neither shiver nor, in winter nor suffer from heat harm from the heat. This the elder concluded, is why I said to you, I have not yet become a monk, but I've seen monks. Forgive me, brethren. So an interesting story, um, you know, that, and, you know, it reflects a lot of what we've talked about, that he has this, he's asked for a word. And what arises within his heart to share is that I'm not a monk. And it must not have been a very reassuring thing to those who came to him and asked him for a word, you know, seeking his wisdom. And, uh, but he tells us that he's he's sort of plagued with this uh, because he's told them to go out into the desert and where he will see them, see true monks or come upon them. And, but he puts it to the test for five years. And again, this is a hard thing for us to imagine that uh, there's the, this kind of spiritual warfare, that even though he has this strong sense of this and strong sense of himself and his own weakness, he doesn't respond quickly to the, the thought of going out in search of those who are living the life more fully. And so puts it to the test for five years, but then finally, you know, when he's seen that it isn't a delusion, he does make the journey. And comes across these two unusual individuals, you know, who for 40 years have been living in the deepest desert to the point that they're no longer clothed and endure through winter and summer in this in these extremes. And, you know, he's, you know, overcome by it and ask, you know, ask them how they you know, became this way or how he could become. And they tell him, you know, clearly uh, what he's supposed to do. Uh, and, but he's, you know, acknowledges that he can't make this kind of renunciation. And in this sense, he, he almost mirrors for us the, the rich young man in the gospel who has Christ before him. And Christ, you know, sees him, loves him, and wants him to experience what he's experienced. Tells him, go, sell what you give, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. And the young man walks away sad. And so this monk is almost like this, that he sees it, what he's been longing for, and yet realizes that he can't do it. And so their counsel to him is then, simply go then and remain in your cell and acknowledge the poverty uh, of your sin, You know, which is b- fundamentally what they're telling him is to live in this radical humility. Acknowledge your poverty before God, humble yourself, and this is what will exalt you. Simply because you cannot do what we do or you're not able to live this level of renunciation does not mean that all is lost. But in the face of that inability to at least humble yourself before God, and so you know when we read these uh, stories from the fathers or or any of the saints, there's a part of us that will often say, you know, I'm not I'm not capable of doing that, Uh, and so it becomes a rationalization for us not to try you know to be negligent about our spiritual life or we see it as extreme as impossible to to us and uh and yet are unwilling to humble our ourselves in in the face of our weakness of our will or our inability to make that level of renunciation in our life and uh But it's in the end, it's lack of humility alone uh, that is problematic for us. So he comes across the most ascetic individuals that one could imagine. Two men living for 40 days, I'm sorry, 40 years, unclothed in the heat and in the cold. And basically what they're telling him is remain in yourself and be humble, and uh, and I think that's the more important message that comes to us as well. That more than the ascetic discipline uh, is what's important is humility of heart. The ascetic discipline is to help foster that within us. Uh, but if for some reason or another we're not able to embrace it. Then it is is humility that has the capacity to lift us up and and purify and perfect the heart. Is humility and ego are they are they polar opposites, Father? Would you say? Yeah, I would say so. I think the you know when you know studying psychology a lot too, you know over time ego and the strengthening of the ego, typically in our day and age is the goal of the therapeutic man, therapeutic woman. It's to strengthen the defenses, to to elevate the sense of self and self-identity, but so often detached from he who is reality, from detached from God. And uh, humility, allows us to set aside the ego the false self and to put on christ uh if you remember in some of our previous sessions we talked about paul's little phrase it is no longer i who live i but christ who lives within me and the word that paul uses there is ego is no longer i who live ego but christ who lives within me so he set aside self Uh, so completely in order to embrace christ and the life that he offers this is where freedom comes from and so what you're saying is accurate is that you know that the opposite of humility would be ego or egotism uh and uh, again you know it's we we live in these odd times, this last century, we find the the emergence. And certainly it began earlier than this last century. And I think we go, especially back to the Enlightenment, where reason, uh, the, the human person, is sort of made the center of reality of life. And uh, there's a movement away from faith and the things of faith. But then, you know, with, uh, in psychology with psychology so often what you find is this emergence of therapeutic man and therapeutic woman instead of spiritual man and spiritual woman Uh, even to the point of the misinterpretation of the word psychotherapy Uh, the word psyche means soul and not just emotions or mind and but what we what we've done I think is we, we work to lift men and women out of the depression and the darkness and the anxiety that comes from living in this fallen world, not by turning to God, who's the source of hope and strength, but trying to strengthen those defense mechanisms in order to be able to create some semblance of happiness for the self. So the defenses that are strong enough that allow a person to work or to love, to enter into relationships. Uh, but again, it's, it's not something that is enduring, uh, nor what we are called to as, you know, we're called to sh- share and again, an invincible hope and an invincible love, you know that which can't be taken away from us and uh you know you go to any monastery where the holiest of monks lived. you know if you go out to the cemetery, you're not going to find one of them buried there that were you know where they were perfectly self you know well-adjusted uh men, you know that had their act pulled together, you know that some of them were quirky, eccentric, had their, you know problems and but they were holy in the sense that they humbled themselves you know and set aside this ego to live this common life and a life focused upon god and uh and this is you know what i think what we move away have moved away from you know christianity was never meant to to make our life in this world better or easier you don't find that in the gospel in fact you find the opposite of it and but what's promised to us is this experience of the living god and not only the experience of the living god but the living god dwelling within us and in such a way that nothing and no one can take it away from us Uh, uh, and uh, you know, and the world though, keeps putting out this hope that we we can find that for ourselves, much like the temptation of Adam and Eve, you know, take th- of the fruit of the tree and eat, and your eyes will be open. And that's what's, you know, that same temptation is held out to us over and over again in different forms, you know, where we in our lives will seek to take hold of. You know, the path that we are taking or what we want or what we think will bring us happiness that takes us down a path that is contrary to our relationship with God. And we find ourselves in that same state as Adam and Eve. There's nothing new under the sun. So the same same goes. Just different forms of it. So. Number 83, St. Anthony and the Cobbler. This is a wonderful little story. And, you know, we want to read this in a certain way and the author will tell us why. So I'm not going to reiterate itself, but uh, nonetheless, it's one of the important stories in the lives of, of the fathers. Uh, Once upon a time, when Abba Anthony the Great was praying in his cell, a voice came to him that said, Anthony, you have not yet attained to the stature of such such and such a cobbler who lives in Alexandria. So the elder arose in the morning and taking his palm wood staff went to this cobbler. After entering his house and greeting him, he sat next to him and said, tell me, brother, of your deeds. Abba, I am not aware of having done anything good, except that when I get up in the morning to sit in my workshop, I say to myself, all the inhabitants of this city, from the least to the greatest, are going to enter the kingdom of heaven because of their righteousness, while I alone will inherit hell because of my sins. And again in the evening, before I go to sleep, I say the same thing. On hearing this, the elder said, in truth, you are like a goldsmith. You sit in your house at rest and you have inherited the kingdom. But I, with my lack of discernment, have been living all my life in the desert, yet I have not caught up with you. Now, this is where we are are warned a little bit by the author. Be careful, reader, lest you understand this story in an undiscerning and simplistic manner and be harmed rather than edified by it. You should not suppose that this one activity of a man living in the world, which does not in and of itself involve any toil, is preferable to the entire ascetic life of the founder and leader of the ascetic fathers, who received his reward in proportion to his own labor, was glorified by God more than all the other fathers, and has been assigned to the same place where God is, as it was revealed to one of the saints." For if the cobbler, solely on account of his pious thought, were to be preferred above St. Anthony the Great, this fiery pillar who enlightened the inhabited earth, as one of the saints has said of him, why is it that the cobbler is not put forward as an example for all to imitate? And why do we not all take care to make ourselves more like him, having uh, having reckoned him to be better, when indeed it is so easy for us to imitate him. And why is it leaving aside the cobbler that we monastics look to the life of the wondrous Anthony as an archetype, each of us striving to make his life equal to that of the great Anthony? And this indeed, when it is so laborious for us to attempt to liken ourselves to him, few succeeding completely in this endeavor. I think to be sure that not even a few have been successful in this. So it's a good question. You know, if this cobbler in the city, by humbling himself with this one thought, morning and night, uh, reaches this height of perfection and humility, then why do we reverence Anthony the Great, who's told that, hey, there's one in the city who's reached a level of sanctity greater than you. Why, why not just imitate this guy? So the author goes on it is clear thus that God, who always humbles those who dedicate themselves to him, all those whom, as scripture says, he receives, and who Paul and who gave Paul a thorn in the flesh, so that he might not be exalted above measure through the abundance of revelation also safeguarded by humility. St. Anthony the Great, who was filled with the spiritual attainments and gifts when he sought to ascertain the measure of perfection that he had reached. And it is clear that God, who loves mankind, showed this ascetic to be a man who had not yet reached the measure of a cobbler without, of course, lying, perish the thought, but speaking the truth and what is actual. What measure does he he set forth the measure of this virtue possessed by the cobbler who was a man living in the world and frequently reproved by his conscience had no great ideas about himself for this reason this man being prudent and recognized recognizing his own faults reckoned in his heart that everyone else was virtuous righteous and worthy of the kingdom of heaven while he condemned himself alone and considered himself an heir to eternal punishment." So, you know, God humbles uh, his servants and not to punish them, but to protect them from pride. And so here you have Anthony the Great, who's lived this ascetic life more fully than any other, who begins to ask himself a question. You know, if is there anyone you know who has attained, you know, a, a level of sanctity that's this greater, and and so it reveals that there is yet remaining within Anthony, as great as he was, this vestige of ego. He wants to compare himself to an to others. And you can, you can imagine how dangerous that can be, that when we shift our focus to others and begin comparing ourselves to others, is where we find ourselves walking in the dark. And so God reveals to him that here, here's a cobbler who, you know, of course, wasn't living this great ascetical life, but was unwilling to not only to humble himself, but unwilling to compare himself to anyone in the entire city. And that in and of itself is extraordinary. It shows a, a greater level, a greater perfection and humility that he doesn't cast his gaze outward at anyone while humbling himself. And Anthony, for all of his greatness, still on, on some level, was driven by that even to the point of going out, not only of asking the question, but searching down this cobbler to question him. Okay, buddy, you know, answer you know, my question, you know, spit it out, let me know what you're doing that has le- led you to this uh, level of perfection. And yeah, Sean writes, Anthony's ego, gosh, he's called great. And that's right, you know, it tells us something important, that here is the greatest of of the monks, and acknowledged as so, saintly figure to be emulated, and yet, you know, had the capacity to wonder about himself, just how holy he was in comparison to others. And and so I'm glad, you know, we're given, and sometimes it's rare in these writings that we're given this commentary as we are on, on the story. Sometimes the story is just given to us. And so th- this is a little bit unique in what we've been reading. But without it, I think it would be possible just to say, okay, you know, here was this humble, humble man. And, you know, you know, what why try to embrace the life that Anthony embraced with all of its hardship and discipline? know who needs asceticism and uh and so the author jumps in there and says "No, not so easy not so easy you know it's just you know anthony was this holy figure but you know it's this capacity for and desire for comparing ourselves he concludes by saying and truly the man was worthy of praises and laudations since although he lived in the world, he had such an attitude, but not for this reason was he loftier than Anthony the Great. Rather, he surpassed the saint only because he regarded himself as more sinful than all other men. For although St. Anthony was humble of mind, and thanks to the energy of the Holy Spirit that was at work in him, did not consider himself worthy of anything. There was yet a conscious awareness That reminded him continually of his accomplishments and spiritual gifts, which he knew well that many others had forsaken. This is why he was unable to regard himself as more sinful than all other men, as did the cobbler, even though he was zealous to debase himself as much as he could. In this respect, therefore, the cobbler conquered St. Anthony the Great. Thus, in pointing out the cobbler to him, God at once spoke the truth and guided his son by grace, Anthony the Great, to greater humility. Let this be the difference for you also, in the case of the other saints, in whom something similar has been revealed or uttered by God. So, you know, here's Anthony the Great being warred against, you know, even after having warred for years within the desert. And in in particular, seeking humility. And yet, in the su- subtle way as the evil one does, uh, can pl- you know plant a thought before us, even one as simple and as subtle as this, to wonder about oneself. And at that moment, we turn away from God, you know, because we're we're glancing at ourselves rather than a God, when a person like is only looking at God and sees the perfection of love, of humility, uh, of selflessness, then the only thought is have mercy on me, a sinner. But the moment that we turn to look at others, to compare, we, we've taken our eyes off of him, even if in so subtle and small a way. And uh, then we can get caught up in, in the darkness of, of the evil one. So it's an extraordinary little story. and I, I think I've heard this story articulated many times before by others and by myself, uh, you know about Anthony and this individual, you know who proves to be holier, but never with this commentary. And this little bit of commentary makes all the difference. Uh, who wrote, Sean writes? Compare and despair. That's right. You know, to turn the eyes to the other is to lose our vision of He who is our hope, and and our hope alone. And uh, such an important message. And so this is solid food. And I think we have to acknowledge that when we're, you know, reading about the spiritual life, uh, what we're being fed upon here is uh, on a spiritual level, very deep, you know, we're being shown uh, how deep the spiritual battle goes and how it must be fought. And by, by these stories of someone like Saint Anthony the Great, Maureen writes, "How do you not get into a self-hate toward your life? Did not the Church Father won't, won't fathers warn against self-pity?" Right. There is a difference, and I think you know. And even this story, I think, helps us. Uh, you know, the the humility and the acknowledgment of one's sins among the fathers. Was always had as its end God, compunction. And if you remember, we've talked about this that there's not an English word that's equivalent to the word that they would use, except we would say sorrowful joy. And it's more of this movement of the mind and the heart, the acknowledgement of poverty that turns us toward God in order that we might know healing and forgiveness. And whereas sometimes if it is driven by self-hate that God isn't part of that picture. We're seeing the poverty without the faith. And then this makes us pitiful figures because then we aren't drawn into that which gives us hope. And we can spiral down into a kind of despondency uh, where we lose sight of God altogether and so this is why you know over and over again we're reminded through the writings of the fathers about the true nature of repentance and you know it's part of god's desire to open up to us his love and forgiveness that god isn't looking to you know send us to hellfire you know what he's looking to do is to offer us forgiveness and mercy and um you know, you remember all the first stories in this volume where all those individuals who repented and then died on their way back to the monastery without changing their life. You know, they they acknowledged their sin, turned to God, and, but on their way back for one reason or another died. And I think we were started out on that, with that step for a reason in order that we might understand that our starting point is the love and the mercy of God. And all that he's looking for from us is this kind of faith and repentance that turns towards him. And uh, because if if that is lacking, then we do risk what you've talked about, which is this kind of self-hatred. And finally, uh, Carol Mypaper writes, Father, at the start of this discussion, you mentioned that the slightest turning toward God fills the heart with great grace. Likewise, the slightest turning away from God fills the heart with pride. Or can you know? I think you know, pride is the one vice that can diminish all the virtues that we have been striving for for years. When again we when we attribute them to ourselves rather than to the grace of God. So it's sort of the the flip side of humility for us whereas humility can make up for for what is lacking uh, because it turns us so radically toward God and towards his mercy. So again, a lot to think about here and this story of St. Anthony, I think is a good one to end with tonight uh, to chew on a little bit for the week. Okay. So when we close there with the with the our father in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit. Amen. Our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil amen the lord be with you may our god bless you the father the son and the holy spirit amen go in peace